Everybody, please welcome Nate Hurst. Thank you so much, George. Well, it is an honor to be here. And I'm excited to get to share with you all today. How many of you have been enjoying it so far? Well, I believe God has something special for you today in His Word. It, it has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do with His Word. And I believe that you'll walk away encouraged today to walk in boldness in all the Lord has called you to in life, in ministry, in family, in all these different areas. We're going to be talking about winning the fight of your life. We're going to be talking from 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, if you brought one with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'll share a lot of scripture, but you can just stay right there at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to unpack one verse, and I think there's a lot for us to get out of it. But again, we're going to be talking about winning the fight of your life. Now, some of you right now are in the fight of your life. Some of you maybe aren't, but you know that day is probably coming. Uh, all of us are going to hit times where we hit struggles in life, where we hit trials in life. And as we jump into uh, this message on winning the fight of your life, I want to start by telling you five things about the fight that are guaranteed. Number one is the fight is guaranteed. Oh, could somebody grab that? I think that's one of my kids' pictures. All right, number one is the fight is guaranteed. Uh, it would be, it'd be wonderful to go through life without any kind of trial, without any kind of adversity, but that's not going to be a reality in this world. It will be in the one to come. But Jesus tells us in John 16, he says, in this world you will have trouble. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world, right? And in 1 Peter 4, 12, uh, Peter tells Believers that were struggling with persecution, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that you encounter. So the first thing, before we even jump into this whole topic of winning the fight of your life, is to know that the fight is guaranteed. It's going to come. Number two, the fight is grueling. I don't have to convince you of that. All of you that have been through a fight know it's grueling. And it's agonizing. And it drains you. And some of you right now, if you're one of those that's in the fight of your life right now, you might feel drained. You might feel discouraged. You might feel weary. I want to encourage you that the Lord will strengthen you. He will give you what you need as you look to Him during this time. In Isaiah 40, 31, we read, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So if you're in the middle of that grueling fight, I want you to know that the Lord is your strength. Hope in Him. I've been through multiple fights myself throughout my life, and it seems it's always tempting to hope for the circumstance to change. And that's natural. But our hope has to be in the Lord Himself, the unchanging God of the universe. Right? The fight is guaranteed. The fight is grueling. But the fight is also growth-producing. In James 1, 2 through 4, we're told to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And that leads to maturity and completeness in our walk with God. So it's not all bad. 
God is doing good work in us. In fact, the fight is good. Paul three different times calls this a good fight. He tells Timothy twice to fight the good fight. And right before he ends his his ministry on this planet, before he goes to be with the Lord, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. So the fight is good. And finally, I want to tell you, and I want to promise you, the fight is going to end well. You've been promised that in God's word. And we know that what we read in his word is true. The fight is going to end well because he says he will turn everything around for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. That's a promise in Romans 8. And a few verses later, he says that we're more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from his love for us. Those are truths about the fight. It's guaranteed, it's grueling, it's growth producing, it's good, and it's going to end well. So wherever you're at today, if you're in the middle of it or if you just know that those times are coming, I want you to know there's good in it and there's a Savior that will walk with you every step of the way. And if you're in it right now, He is your hope. He is your encouragement. He is your strength. Now with that in mind, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It's a famous passage. Many of you know it. And it's something that I think gives us a few keys to walking in the victory that God has given us, to winning the fight of our lives. In fact, in the very verse that comes before 58, it tells us that Jesus has given us victory over sin and death. And then it tells us some very important things to remember as we walk that out. Now, I want to ask you to give me your undivided attention for the next 40-ish minutes. Because I think what we unpack here will be life-changing. Again, not because of me, but because it's God's Word. I always like to talk about apologetics, because this isn't just our particular flavor of faith. This isn't just our particular book. This is the truth of God. And I believe that it's important for us, especially in this day and age, to be able to defend that. I was just in Corinth about four weeks ago. And if you read in Acts about Paul's time in Corinth, you'll read about him going to the synagogue and preaching to the Jews that were there. You know, there's archaeological evidence for that synagogue in Corinth today. There's a, an inscription that says the synagogue of the Jews, and there are inscriptions of menorahs from the city of Corinth there. It talks about him going on trial before the Bema, the judgment seat. And you can go visit that very judgment seat. It's actually a risen platform about the size of this one. It's there today to see. It talks about Erastus, who was from Corinth, joining him along the rest of his journey. It mentions him in Ephesus in his next stop. And later on, Paul, again in 2 Timothy, says that Erastus was back in Corinth, his hometown. You know, you can see the Erastus inscription in Corinth today. And it actually confirms the same exact things about Erastus that we read from Luke and Acts. I say all that to say that what we read in God's Word is true, and it's authentic, and it's reliable. And most of you know that. But there are always people that aren't sure. And I want you to know that what we read today is absolutely true. So let's jump into 1 Corinthians 15.58. And I think we're going to see four keys here to winning the fight of our lives. So if you have your, your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 
1558, we read, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, This is one of those uh, famous passages that you'll hear often, that you'll see posted often. But sometimes we, we just pull it out of its context and we fail to realize all that's here. I want to I unpack this a little bit today. And I want to I start with key number one. And that's start with Jesus. This passage starts with a therefore. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. You've probably heard the old adage that when you see a therefore, you want to see what it's there for, right? So why is this therefore there? Well, it's there because we find it at the end of one of the most important passages in Scripture on the resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is defending the resurrection, explaining the resurrection, uh, telling us the theological importance of the resurrection. I'm going to get to a little bit more about the resurrection in a minute. But the therefore is there because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And like I said a minute ago, that's in the very verse preceding, verse 58. Jesus is the reason that this is there for. So the first key I want to talk about today, and this is always the most important thing, is we start with Jesus. Remember Joshua and the promised land. God had already promised them the promised land, right? But they still had to go in and take that promised land. We have been given victory through Jesus Christ. We're promised that right there in this passage in verse 57 and in other places. But we're also called to walk in this as believers. To walk in these things. And the great news we hear in Ephesians 1 is that the unparalleled power of God which was demonstrated in the resurrection that Paul is talking about here is available for every one of us as believers today. So Paul begins this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, with a creed. It it was basically a song about the resurrection. And this is something that he had received when he went to Jerusalem. And and it was confirmed to him that everything that he had believed was true. The early church used these kinds of memory devices to remember the core principles of the faith before they had all the New Testament written down in front of them. And Paul starts this chapter with this important passage about the resurrection. Uh, Even critical scholars today will date this passage back to the year of the resurrection, which is phenomenal, what Paul quotes here. And, And he tells us that the resurrection is a fact. See... He starts by talking about how this happened according to the scriptures. We we knew that the Messiah would come and he would die for our sins and he would rise again. Uh, Daniel prophesied the exact year that this would happen. David and Zechariah both prophesied that Jesus would die by crucifixion. David and Isaiah both prophesied that he would rise again from the dead. Every single gospel writer tells us that Jesus himself prophesied that he would rise from the dead. What Paul is talking about here happened according to the scriptures. It happened according to prophecy. It's also a historical fact looking back at the event. Dr. Gary Habermas is probably the world's foremost expert on the resurrection, on the evidence for the resurrection. And he's compiled a list of 
12 evidences that even secular scholars agree are true. And if these are true, and we know they are, then the resurrection is a fact of history, and we know that's true. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried in a private tomb. This is indisputed. Number three, his disciples were initially discouraged. Number four, that tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. Number five, the disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Number six, their lives were completely transformed, even to the point of being willing to die for their faith. And this is something that's important to catch. A lot of times people die for a belief, but no one dies for what they know is false. These people went on to die and to be persecuted for what they knew to be true. Number seven, the story of the resurrection took place very early at the beginning of church history. This isn't a myth that evolved over time. Number eight, the, the teaching and the preaching of the resurrection happened first off in Jerusalem. The one place in the world that could have been refuted. This is where it happened. Number nine, the gospel from the beginning became the foundation for the Christian church. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day of worshiping for Christians, which was a big deal for those first century Jews. Number eleven, James, the brother of Jesus, who had previously been a skeptic, came to believe because of the resurrection. And number twelve, so did Saul. These evidences are evidences that even the critics would agree are true. They, they might try to come up with rebuttals. You might have heard of the swoon theory. He didn't really die. He kind of resuscitated the tomb. That's one that's been absolutely written off even by the skeptics today. But even if it were true, it would only account for a couple of those data points that I shared. Not all of them. Some would say, oh, the body was moved or stolen. It's equally ludicrous. But again, it would only account for a couple of those, not all of them. It might account for an empty tomb, but not the eyewitness accounts, if that makes sense. Another common rebuttal is a mass hallucination. Those just don't happen, but even if they did, it also wouldn't account for all the evidence. To, to get out of the evidence for the resurrection, skeptics have to hodgepodge together a whole bunch of hypotheses that aren't even warranted in the first place. And that's something that doesn't work. The biggest critic alive today puts it this way. He says, are all those rebuttals valid? And I'm paraphrasing. He says, absolutely not. But then he says something that you have to be a little careful when you hear it. He says, but resurrections don't happen. So I don't care how good the evidence sounds. Resurrections just don't happen. Now I want to tell you a, a, a short story. you got to listen carefully before, before believing someone here. He's saying that he doesn't believe in the resurrection, doesn't matter what the evidence says, so resurrections don't happen. This is circular reasoning. It's begging the question, it's a logical fallacy. The truth here is that the resurrection is a fact of history. And this is something that as Christians we know, but we can be confident in it. This is not something that we have to have a question about. I used to struggle with a, a fear of death for many years. Until I came to the point of realizing that if Jesus conquered death, and he promised that he'd do the same for me in John 6.40, I could trust him with my own eternal life. He alone has conquered death, and he alone is worth trusting. He promised that everyone who looks to him and believes in him will have eternal life. Now, most of you here today know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I believe. 
but I'm sure there are some that don't. What we're talking about here today is not just our particular faith or our favorite myth. This is a truth that you can base your life and eternity on. And before we end, I'm going to invite you to take a step to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord. If you don't know him yet, I pray that you'll take that step. And for those of you that do know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you. He is where victory begins in every single aspect of your life. The longer we try to to persevere through circumstances in our own strength, in our own means, we will fail and we will fail and we will fail. But when we can get our eyes on Jesus, our Savior, He can take over and He can start to work in and through us through our circumstances. So the first step in winning the fight of your life is to start with Jesus. The next is to stand your ground. See, Paul says here, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. So we're called to stand. And a funny illustration comes to mind here. How many of you have ever heard of stand your ground laws? Most of you, right? These laws say that you have the right not to retreat in the face of opposition. And there's a spiritual element that I'm going to bring up here, but I'm going to share a story with you. Uh, Samuel Petrofelli uh, was a criminal that robbed the home of a 90-year-old former sheriff's deputy and World War II vet. Okay? And this vet somehow managed to get his hands on a gun and defend himself. And in the process, he was actually shot by the criminal, and he shot the criminal. And the criminal was apprehended. Later, the criminal actually sued him in court for negligence for wounding him in the robbery. The judge, it sounds ridiculous, right? The judge threw the case out and he said he wasn't negligent because he hit his target. (laughs) Okay? Now, I want to tell you something about this. Uh, You also have an opponent, right? And you also have someone that's going to bring a lawsuit against you. That's your enemy. You have the right not to back down in the face of his opposition. And the judge is on your side because you've trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Okay. Now let me tell you a little bit about your opponents. Number one, Paul talks about this battle with the flesh. And this is part of the fight that we face each and every day. Right? He said the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't. I have this ongoing battle. And he concludes, though, that thanks be to God who gives us the victory in that battle, right? So we have a battle with our flesh. Paul also told the Ephesians that we have a battle with the forces of worldliness, right? That govern the patterns of this world. Finally, we also have a battle with the enemy whose core ambition is to steal and kill and destroy. That battle is very real. We face it every day in different ways. Many of us look around and we see it all around us. And again, some of you might feel like you're right in the middle of it. Again, I want to tell you, you have the right not to retreat in the face of opposition with your enemy. And the judge, the ultimate judge himself, is on your side. He has called you righteous if you believed in him as Savior and Lord. 
Listen, now is not the time to retreat. The Lord has called you and put you here for this very time. He's brought you to this very place for a reason. You are not here in vain. You are not just here to make ends meet. You're not just here to do your daily job and take care of business. God has a purpose for you in this day and age. In Acts 17, 26 through 27, we read that God's determined the times and the places that we live so that people would reach out and find him. So there is a purpose for you today. You are here for a reason. This fight is real precisely because your enemy does not want you to accomplish the purpose that you're here for. You've trusted, I believe, many of you in Jesus, and because of that, you know that you're going to be spending eternity with him in heaven. But your enemy wants to keep you from the effectiveness that God has called you to. We must stand strong in our faith. Uh, See, Paul in the very next chapter says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. And in the next book to these same Corinthians, he reminds them again in the first chapter to stand firm by faith. See, we need to stand firm by faith. And faith is not just emotional intensity. It's not just believing really hard in Santa Claus, right? Because that won't change anything about the reality of Santa Claus. Faith is well-placed and intentional trust. It's knowing who I have believed and knowing that he is trustworthy. And because of that, I trust him. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and seems more than strong enough. How can it save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Listen carefully here. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. You have put your faith in the living God. That is something to be confident in as you take your stand in the middle of the fight here and now in this day and age. That day of evil is going to come, Paul tells the Ephesians. He says that day is going to come. And he tells them four times in chapter 6 to take their stand. He says, take their stand against the devil's schemes. That word there, scheme, is methodoia. He's scheming against us. Our enemy is scheming or he's coming up with a method for us. But we take our stand by faith. We stand, Paul says, in the Lord and in his power. We put on the belt, of, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We, we fit our, our, our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel, the gospel that saved us, the gospel this world needs to hear. We raise a shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts that Satan so constantly throws at us, right? We take on that helmet of salvation and we, we lift up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and we pray. This is how we stand in this battle. We stand strong and we have to also stay the course. 
See, that's the third key here. Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. You're in the middle of a long race. I think it was one of the, one of the people that was on stage earlier said that they like to run. I love running too. Uh, and sometimes when we do longer runs, we have to pace ourselves because it's going to be a long run, right? Well, you're in the middle of a long run. And there is going to be a constant barrage of obstacles coming your way that will try to move you off track from your course. Paul says, let nothing move you. There are so many different things that can get us off track from what the Lord has called us to. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As we run the race that God has called us to, we are called to keep our eyes on Jesus and to not be sidetracked by the countless obstacles that we will face. I'm going to tell you a very sad story of ignoring those obstacles and losing big. Susie mentioned doing a concert in New Mexico. Even though I was born in Montrose and spent a lot of time in Colorado, I'm now from the beautiful state of New Mexico. And New Mexicans are uh, very disheartened by a recent astronomical development. Many of you might be aware of this. How many of you know the sad story of Pluto? Right? Didn't you grow up learning that Pluto was a planet? Okay. Now in New Mexico, everybody's very proud of this fact because it was a New Mexican that first found Pluto. Right? So it's actually state law, if I'm not mistaken, in New Mexico that Pluto is still a planet. <laughs> but everywhere else, it's been kicked off the planet list because of one little mistake. It forgot to clear its obstacles. <laughs> Planets have to clear their debris field. And Pluto hasn't done that yet. So we New Mexicans still call it a planet, but for everyone else, it's a, it's a sad story of forgetting to clear those obstacles and missing out big. It's a funny story, but it's something that brings up this, this topic of the obstacles that we each face in our lives. See, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're told to be rightly related to the Lord, to have our eyes set on him. But it also says to, to lay up all these things that would hinder us. Some of those might include bad habits. They might include unhealthy relationships. They might include insecurities, lust, fears, incorrect expectations, being stuck in the past, looking backward, or anxiety about the future. They can include wrong desires, hurts, unforgiveness, pride, addictions, and so much more. See, as we race the race that we've been called to race, as we run that race, we're called to get rid of these obstacles, to lay them aside, to look at Jesus instead of all of these things that can distract us from our course. If we want to win the fight of our lives, we need to get our eyes on Jesus, not these obstacles. And we need to give these obstacles to him. 
Uh, for each one of us, there comes that decision point. And I'm going to ask you to join me in a decision in a few minutes here where we really surrender those things to the Lord. Where we determine not to be moved and to stop at nothing. And that's the fourth key here, right? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, you have been put here for a purpose, and you've been called to give yourself fully to that, to stop at nothing. What stops you from the purpose that God has called you to? I mean, there are a million things that can stop us from stepping into all God has told us to, to walk in, all that he's called us to. I've heard it said that the measure of a person is what does it take to get them going and what does it take to stop them, right? Howard Hendricks said this. If it takes a whole lot to get you going and very little to stop you, you, you got some growing to do, right? But we're all in this place where we've been called to stop at nothing, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We start with Jesus. We get our eyes on him. We stand our ground. We determine that we're not going to let the enemy take us out. We stay the course. We decide that we're not going to let the obstacles sidetrack us. But finally, we give ourselves fully to his work. We stop at nothing. We come as a warm body. We say, here I am, just like Isaiah in chapter 6. Send me. I'm yours. I'm willing. You have a purpose, and the Lord has called you to give yourself fully to him and to that purpose and to stop at nothing. Do we have any ranchers here? I know there are a few ranchers here. Let me tell you a story about the 61-year-old rancher that beat many of the world's elite athletes at a super marathon. You ever hear this story? It's one of my favorites. Cliff Young was a 61-year-old Australian potato farmer and cattle rancher. And he won the inaugural Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon in 1983. This is a 544-mile marathon. Now, how in the world did this 61-year-old man decide, I'm going to enter this ultramarathon and actually have the audacity to believe he had a chance at winning it, right? Against a, a whole field of elite power athletes and runners. His strategy was stop at nothing. <laughs> he, he had memories of chasing cattle throughout the night and stopping at nothing. And he said, that's exactly what I'm going to do in this race. And he did it. He ran and all day long. And when many of the other runner, runners would stop for the night to rest up before beginning a run the next day, he just ran through the night. And he did that. This is amazing. He finished all 544 miles, beating the second place runner by more than nine hours, if you can believe that, as a 61-year-old. Uh, his name was Cliff Young. Amazing story. But his secret was, don't stop. Just keep running. I want to encourage you, as believers, we have an enemy. We've talked about that. We have obstacles. We've talked about that. But, you know, we're here for a time that God has put us here for. And the purpose he has for you is too important to stop. He says, stop at nothing. Give yourself fully to the work that God has called you to. You know, Paul described his own example of this. And he uses an illustration from the Isthmian Games. 
In fact, the Isthmian Games happened right below Corinth, and Paul uses this example when he talks to the Corinthians in chapter 9 of the first book. The Isthmian Games were kind of the Corinthian counterpart to the Olympic Games, right? They happened every two years, and people would come from all over the world to compete in the Isthmian Games. And in these games, they would go into strict training. They had incredible rules that they had to follow meticulously so they wouldn't be disqualified. And the prize that they would win if they competed according to the rules and won was a pine wreath, like a, a pine branch off one of these trees here. It was a wreath made out of pine that was cut from the isthmus below. It was a perishable wreath. And in itself, there was no intrinsic value, but that wreath was a, a symbol of honor. And the athlete that won it would take it home to the city that he hailed from, and he would place it on the altar of that city's deity, right? And it would be a symbol that it was through the power to the glory of that deity that he had won that competition. And Paul, with that picture in mind, tells us we live for something so much greater. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Remember, he tells this to the Corinthians who were in charge of running the Isthmian Games. He says, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And just like they would put that crown on their altar to their false deity, we someday will take those crowns and we will worship the one true God with them. We'll throw them at his feet. He says, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air, but I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He was all in and he had determined to stop at nothing. He had determined to give himself fully to the work of the Lord all the way until the very end. And he tells us that right there in 2 Timothy that he was being poured out like a drink offering, right? He had done this all the way to the very end. So my encouragement to you today is to start with Jesus, to stand your ground in the face of your enemy, to stay the course, to not be sidetracked by your obstacles, and then to stop at nothing as you give yourself fully to the Lord and all that he's called you to. You have a purpose. Scripture tells us that the body is a body with many parts and that every single part needs to do its part. It's called to be a part of what God is doing. You have a purpose. You have a calling and a mission. You know the Great Commission, I just saw a recent Barna survey that said more than 50% of Christians don't even know what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is Jesus' final commandment to believers. He saved one of the most important things till the end. And he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world and working with believers. I'll tell you something. God is working across this planet. People are trusting Jesus like never before throughout our world. Disciples are multiplying throughout this globe. And God has said this is our day and our time. He's called us to stand up and be a part of that here and now. And it's the most exhilarating time, I think, in human history to be here. We have opportunities that have never before existed on this planet for the Lord's work. 
it's time to give ourselves fully to his work. Now, sometimes people think, well, I don't know what, what God's purpose for me is. You know what? Don't stress out about it. it it's kind of like an interstate. Get on the interstate and then he'll tell you what exit to get off on. <laughs> but if you're not on the interstate, it doesn't matter what exit you should be getting off on because you're not even on the interstate. He's given you in his word all sorts of important things to be following him in. Give yourself fully to them. Then, as he makes clear specific steps, step into them with boldness and confidence. So here's what I want to encourage you with today. For those of you that know Jesus, in a minute I want to address those of you that don't yet know Jesus. If you know Jesus, I want to encourage you to overcome your opponent and to obliterate your obstacles. Get real about what's beating you. Right As we read this, take an inventory. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you're losing in the fight. And then surrender that to Him. And stop looking at that and get your eyes on Jesus like we read. Because He is able to walk us through us, through these things. Uh, get in God's Word and let it transform you from the inside out. As we're in His Word, it will change us to be all He wants us to be and to do what He's called us to do. And then get some good godly accountability that will keep you encouraged to do the things that the Lord has called you to. And then finally, I want to say, own your opportunity. God has put some things in front of you right now. I don't know what they are, but I think you know what God is calling you to. Each of you here has steps that I know the Lord has revealed to you, things that he's called you to step into. I want to encourage you to step into it with everything that he's given you and to trust him with those things, even if you feel insecure in those things. Even if you feel like you don't have what it takes, I assure you, you don't. Step into them and rely on His power for what only He can do. In the last year and a half, we've taken the biggest ministry step of our lives, and it's so much bigger than us. And it's been exhilarating watching God do what only He can in and through us. So 1 Corinthians 15:58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Today we talked about four keys. But the most important thing as we remember those four keys is to do these in His power. In Zechariah 4.6, the Lord says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. If you're thinking, I don't have what it takes, join the club. I don't either. He has commanded believers in His Word in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit. And He's promised us in 1 John 5 that if we ask anything according to His will, He'll do it. So just ask Him. I Say, I don't have what it takes, but fill me with your Spirit to do what only you can. And then watch Him show up and do what He's called you to through you in His power, not your own. So let me recap those four keys for you. And then I want to address anyone here that needs to take a step of salvation with Jesus. Number four, we talked about stopping at nothing. It's time to own your opportunity and to step into the purpose that God has called you to. You don't have what it takes, but he does. Number three, we said stand your ground. You have an opponent, it's time to, to 
Address it head on in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, number two, stay the course. Get rid of the obstacles that can take you off course from what God has called you to. And number one, the most important of all, is start with Jesus. And here's where I want to talk to anyone here that maybe hasn't taken that first step to start with Jesus yet. I want, I want you to imagine right now that, that Jesus himself is telling you these words I'm going to share because he is. I want to share from Scripture some of Jesus' own words about how you can have a relationship with him. If you've never taken this step to begin a relationship with Christ, maybe you don't know where you will spend eternity. This is for you. And these words are straight from Jesus' mouth. First of all, Jesus tells you that God loves you and he wants you to be with him forever. Here's what he says. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he also said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus himself wants you to be with him forever. He wants you to experience a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. This is his desire for you. But there's a fundamental problem that keeps us from that. And Gary talked about it earlier. We are sinners. God is perfect and we are not. And an imperfect sinner cannot be with a perfect sinless God for eternity. It's impossible. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he also says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Heaven and hell are very real. They're not real because I came up with them. They're not real because they sound logical. They are real because the only one that has ever demonstrated power over life and death told us they were real. And I think we can trust him on this. And if he says they're real, I had better listen to him. He also tells us in Matthew 7 that even the best religious works won't get us into heaven. It's not a matter of doing better. It's not a matter of going to church more. It's not a matter of praying more, reading the Bible more. All those things are good, but those won't get us into heaven. Jesus told us the only way to heaven. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says that he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And he said that he had authority to forgive sins. He said the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he actually proved that he had that authority by healing someone on the spot right there. See, he paid the price for your sins on the cross because he loves you. And he has the authority to forgive your sins. And he's inviting you to trust in him and be forgiven today. He says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. He promises you that if you believe in him, that if you put your faith and trust in him, that you will be saved, that you will be forgiven. And again, that faith and trust doesn't mean that you don't have any doubts. It doesn't mean that you emotionally really, really are convinced it's true. It means that you take what faith you have and you put it in the one that is worthy of that faith, the one that is true. 
So you don't have to wait till all the stars align in your life. You can come as you are and say, Jesus, I need you desperately. He says, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. If you've never taken this step, do you believe today that you're a sinner that needs Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again? If so, this is your day to take that step. He's inviting you to come to him right now. He actually says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I believe there are some people here that are, that are going to say, yes, I need to take that step with Jesus. Well, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer with me. This prayer won't save you, but putting your faith and trust in the Savior alone will, and a prayer is a great way to express that. In fact, in Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of a tax collector that prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he says that man went home justified that day. So if you're at that point where you're ready to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord, I want you to agree with me in prayer. All of you, uh, go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads with me. And if this is you, if you need to take this step, I beg you not to put it off another day. But to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Please come into my life and change me. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Amen. A lot of you have cell phones out there. I want to ask you to, to do something with me. I'm going to give you my phone number. Please don't blow up my phone. <laughs> but if you made a decision today, and here are a couple decisions I'd like to hear about. Number one, if you decided, man, I need to, I need to step into my purpose. Uh, I need to put everything else aside and say yes to that purpose. I want to hear from you. Go ahead and type my number in your phone. Because I'm also going to ask you if you took this step with Jesus to let me know so that we can follow up with you. Go ahead and type my number in. It's 970-946-9045. Okay, that's 970-946-9045. Tell me your name and, and tell me what God did in your life today. Because we want to make sure that you get connected with some encouraging follow-up. And I know God's going to do special things in your life. That number one more time if you need it is 970-946-9045. Okay, if you took that step, go ahead and text me and let me know what God's done in your life. Whether it's stepping into a purpose whether it's putting your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord for the first time, or even if it's rededicating your life to Christ. Let me know your name and the step you took. There are going to be a group of people up here that want to pray with you if you need encouragement or support or prayer. If there are any pastors out there that would like to join us up front and be available to talk to people and pray with them, we want to have you come down here and, and be available to anybody that would like to talk. Well, I'm so thankful for having you here today and for being able to encourage you. It's been an honor to speak with you. Remember, in the fight of your life, start with Jesus, stand your ground, stay the course, and stop at nothing. 
God has great things for you, I encourage you to step into it and to trust him to do what only he can through you. Thanks.